I'm not going to be following a script this weekend. I'm, I, I want this to be uh, a group endeavor, highly interactive, so I'm in the position of, of, of the guy, and uh, you're going to let me know where you, uh, where you need, to be, need to be guided, okay? So we'll rely, uh, it's about meditation, it's meditation instruction. And um, in a way, it's a bit of an experiment, but it is something that I've, I've done before and has worked very well, which is rather than just talking about meditation, that uh, guides you in the meditation, so we'll do it together. I'll meditate out loud and you follow along with me. And um, when, we've, when we've done that before, it's, it's been very effective. And so I um, decided to make that the, the main thrust of what we do this weekend. So <clears throat> I need to get a feel for, every, for, for where everyone here is at. And I think most of you, most of you are people that have practiced with me for quite some time. But some of you are not. Um, and we usually do a uh, practice of uh, following the sensations of the breath at the nose. But I know there's some people in the room whose primary practice is something different than that. Um, so what I'd like to do is, uh, if, you, if you don't mind, please, if, uh, <clears throat> if you haven't been practicing with me regularly in the past, uh, if you could just tell me a little bit about the kind of practice you do, um, so so that collectively I know who I'm speaking to. So uh, I think the easiest way to do it is I just start on this side of the room. And is there anybody over there that I should should hear from about if you're doing any kind of practice normally other than following the breath with the nose? Well, I follow the breath in different places, and um, <clears throat> oftentimes I'm um, just tracking body sensations, and I do a lot of different things with Shenzhen's uh, techniques. You do with Shenzhen's techniques, yeah. So and, and others also. So you, you do a noting practice? Yeah, and I have done a Vipassana practice where I was uh, just focusing on the area here for a nine-day retreat. Mm -hmm. So I'm not unaccustomed to doing it a different way. Yeah. Do you, who are you, I, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that practice. So you're focusing on the breath at the nose. Uh-huh. Um, Where you feel it in the, I think I can do the quote, the limited triangular area between the nose and the lip. He says okay. over and over and over again. It's uh, from uh, Sidao. From the Vipassana Society, California Vipassana Society, it's from Mahasi Sayadaw. Yes. Oh, and were you noting though? Were you labeling, uh, uh, thinking, and hearing, and things like that? Yeah, but yeah. for for uh, for days, uh, the first few days, was just noticing the sensation there. Just noticing the sensation. Okay. Yeah. I would call myself a long-time novice meditator. <clears throat> well, you, you were really the person 
that I want to address is that uh, ho hopefully I can help you um, cease to be a, a novice. <laughs> That's why I came. I, 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 <clears throat> I don't want to make any problems and promises, but that is my hope, is that I can give you some guidance and tips that you'll get past the, that novice state. Someone else over on this side of the room does anything at all different than what I usually teach? Oh, okay. How about in the middle here? Yes. Um, well, I, I do focus on breath, but also Shinsen's technique. Okay. And um, some metta and mm -hmm. the melange. That's good. And I've, and I've come before and um, been to some of the you know, non-residential retreats when you, yes. you've been teaching. Great. Okay. How many people here usually do Shenzhen's method? Okay, so there's a number. Right. So. Okay, anyone else? <coughs> this is, yes? <coughs> um, I, I'm fairly ring with Blake Ashley, another instructor here, mm -hmm. and he has more of a guided sort of variation each time, depending on parts of the body, maybe the back, front, and, and change throughout, or <laughs> even verbal talk, or areas that might sense emotion, like teary eyes, or, so it's kind of a range. A range, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, he he does a lot of the things from, from Shenzhen's practice there. Okay. <clears throat> yes? I don't know what that is. I'm so curious. <coughs> oh, well, yes, you, you don't. Uh, Shenzhen Yang, he's a good friend of mine. He teaches a, a variation on uh, a noting or labeling practice um, where, actually, as, as we go along, you'll, you'll, you'll understand this more clearly because uh, some, some of the things that we'll do will make it obvious. But essentially, he divides up mental activities, okay, thoughts that occur in form of uh, inner self-talk, verbalizations, thoughts that come up in form of images, uh, and, uh, and feelings. Right? And of course, these have their counterparts with uh, what you would actually hear with your ears see with your eyes and so forth. But it's a way of developing mindfulness by noting and labeling which of these processes are taking place. And there's, he divides it up in quite a number of different ways so that you can focus on one or two or three or, or any number of these at any one time. Well, this and yes, yes. I'm another new person, and I'm new to the center. It's my first time here. And my practice is the focusing on the breath. Mm -hmm. But I haven't been to any sessions that you've had before. Right. So okay. So this is actually uh, a remarkably uniform group. <laughs> Amazing. 
yeah, wonderful. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful because uh, uh, when people are coming from a lot of different places, it, it can be a bit confusing, right? Most people are uh, with one teacher and then you have a, a smaller number who are practicing different methods, then, um, yeah, it, it, it can be a little more difficult. This is going to make it much more, much easier. Okay, good. So, <clears throat> let's go ahead and begin, all right? I'd like you to, this is, this is the way every meditation begins. You first make yourself comfortable. So you check in with your body, adjust your posture. And don't close your eyes yet. Okay? So to begin with, with your eyes open, just you have a, a, a field of consciousness, field of conscious awareness, right? And um, everything that you're experiencing in, in the moment constitutes that field. So you're hearing my voice and you're seeing things with your eyes. You have experiencing all kinds of sensations with your body. And to some degree or another, there may be some thoughts taking place. Now, just for a moment, be, make this make this your your focus is just to explore the, what it means to be conscious, very intensely. Don't close your eyes yet. what your eyes are doing though. They move, they rest someplace. Now I want you to close your eyes and notice the difference. Visual activity provides a very large amount of content to consciousness. And simply by closing your eyes, you reduce the total amount of content by at least 30%, maybe 50%.
and I just want you to notice what constitutes the content of consciousness as you sit here motionless with your eyes closed. First of all, just divide it up into two categories. Sensory content, content that's derived from your sense organs, and content that comes more directly from your mind, mental objects. So we've taken these first very simple and very basic steps of meditation. <clears throat> the first is by sitting still, by ceasing to do and be active. You simplify the, what's happening in the field of conscious awareness. And then by closing your eyes, and removing one major source of input, you simplify it further, makes it much more manageable. And then the next thing we did was to uh, divide it into two categories. And this, of course, allows us to understand the nature of our conscious experience that process of simplification and then division into categories. So this is the, the basis for how we come to understand our minds better, which allows us to work with our own minds in a much more intentional way than we usually do. learn about your mind, you 
can work with your mind, you can train your mind. And these first steps are common to just about any form of meditation. Um, even if you meditate with your eyes open, you generally uh, focus your eyes on, uh, in a way that minimizes the visual input. So you simplify uh, the content of consciousness that way. And then whether you're practicing Zen and the mind finds its own way to begin to categorize the contents of consciousness, or whether you follow some more structured and guided practice, you begin you you basically divide the activities of the mind up in a way that allows you to understand more readily what's going on. In the sensory realm, there are a lot of sounds. The air conditioning is making sound. You hear the hum of a refrigerator. It's my voice. And of course, if I quit speaking for a few moments, you become aware of a lot of other sounds, some traffic noise from outside, little sounds in the room. the sensations in your body. Where your body contacts the sea, where different parts of your body touch each other, contact of clothing on your skin. air on your skin. Rise and fall of your chest and abdomen with every breath.
the sense of the shape of your body, its position, its location in space. Do you taste? Do you taste anything? smell anything? So as you sit here quietly, your sense of hearing is very active. There's really a lot of sensation coming from your body in different forms. Not too much in the way of taste, although if, if you direct your attention to it, you may you may have some experience of taste, but most of the time it's not contributing much to the contents of consciousness. And likewise with smell. And what do you see with your eyes closed? much. There's very minimal visual input, but there is some. So that's the first category, sensation. The other category is mental objects. sure you've had a few thoughts as we've sat here, but maybe not too many. I've kept you pretty focused on your on the sensations. But as we go along and as you as as there's more periods of silence, you're going to experience more thoughts. 
you notice what form those thoughts take. Many thoughts are in the form of verbal self-talk. A little voice in the mind. Words, phrases, sometimes lengthy monologues, sometimes dialogue. Some thoughts take the form of images. Another kind of mental object is are what we might call emotions or mental states. If you feel bored or restless or agitated or anxious, if you feel comfortable, relaxed, peace. Pleased. These are another kind of mental object distinct from images and self-talk. one other kind of mental experience that contributes to consciousness, which is a, a feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant. It's associated with whatever you happen to be feeling or hearing or thinking or remembering or whatever at any given moment. But it's always there either positive, negative, or neutral. Feels pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. So, I'm going to stop speaking for a little while and just let you uh, sit and observe the kinds of mental objects that will inevitably emerge into consciousness.
So the constant, flowing, shifting, changing, turbulent mixture of different kinds of experiences that's taking place in consciousness is subject to being examined, investigated, understood in this way. Firstly, by simplifying the situation we're in sufficiently, and then simply by observing. The contents of conscious experience lend themselves to this very fundamental division into contents that are derived through the senses, come from outside the mind, and content that is derived from the mind itself. nothing at all arbitrary about this division either. There are sensations and there are mental objects. sensations are very naturally and very readily divided up according to the traditional category of five senses. Dividing up mental objects Interesting thing about mental objects, they do bear a direct relationship to the senses. You hear self-talk, you see mental images, It's a kind of thought that you have that's basically kinesthetic, the same way you see an image or you hear words spoken within your own mind. Some thoughts take the form of uh, what it feels like to do something or what it feels like to experience something. After all, that's what it's like when you have experience with thought as an image, isn't it? It feels like you're seeing something. It feels like you're hearing a voice talking to you. Sometimes it feels like something's happening in your body, that your body is doing something or experiencing something. 
But those mental states, those emotional states, that's something different. Although your emotional states, they do have a physical counterpart in your body. Whatever emotion you're experiencing, when you become sufficiently sensitive, you can detect that it has some kind of manifestation or another in your body. Some of these things are obvious. Anger produces really obvious physical sensations in the body. So does fear. Others are more subtle. But I think you know what I mean when you say that when the mind is restless, you feel the restlessness in your body. So one kind of mental object are thoughts that mimic sensory experiences. Another kind of mental objects are these mental states that you feel. But they also have a physical counterpart. <laughs> but the important thing about them as mental objects is that an emotional state, well, it is a mental object. The physical sensations associated with it are secondary. Anxiety, annoyance, all of these things are a kind of mental object as distinct from things that you feel with your skin, hear with your ears. Memories are another kind of mental object. And as with thoughts, memories are closely linked to physical sensations. You remember hearing something, feeling something, seeing something. In some ways, memories aren't that different than other kinds of thoughts. We could probably consider memories to be a kind of thought. a few memories and sample them.
Let's look at another kind of mental object. Abstract concepts. Injustice. What form does that take in your mind? Well, obviously it takes the form of a word. And the word stands for a concept. So when you bring this concept into consciousness, what forms does it take? Might take the form of a, an emotional state, a feeling that you have in reaction to the thought of injustice. images that make it clear in your conscious experience of the moment the meaning of injustice. So you can, and I invite you to experiment with other abstract concepts. For the moment, I want us to continue with our examination of the kinds of mental objects. So, you can see that certain very abstract concepts really have their roots in these simpler forms of uh, verbal thoughts, Images, emotions, their constructs. So we have thoughts, abstract concepts, memories. They're different from each other in different ways. But they all but they have a certain similarity that I'm hoping for you to see. That they're all constructs. They're ultimately derived in one form or another from sensory experience. And that they stand as distinct from the other kind of mental object that we discussed, which is the mental state, the emotion. subtle is that feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral that's always there, always shifting, but always there in response to everything that you think or remember or feel or the emotion that you have. 
So we have a natural taxonomy of objects of consciousness. Those that are sense-derived and those that are mental in nature. Five kinds of sense-derived objects. And roughly three kinds of mentally-derived objects. Those constructs in the form of thoughts and memories and abstract thought. Those in the form of mental states, emotions those in the form of feeling of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And these are important tools that we use in cultivating an understanding of the mind, which when we pursue it ultimately leads to an understanding of the nature of conscious experience. And which ultimately leads to an understanding of, through inference, of the true nature of reality. What it means to be a conscious sentient being. So now let's go ahead and open your eyes and let's talk a little bit about this, about this set of tools for exploring your mind. <clears throat> Some of this you may have heard in other terms. Nama and Rupa, the five aggregates, the five khandas. <coughs> Sounds a little bit exotic. <laughs> you might have spent some time thinking about these things and trying to make sense of them and everything which is well worth doing. But what they're really addressing is there is this natural taxonomy of the contents of the mind, the objects of consciousness, the nature of mind, the nature of experience. And I think this is one of the most, you know, it allows us to turn inward and understand ourselves. It's a, it's a tool that allows us to do that. It's a very important part of meditation. So, I'd like to hear from you. I, I told you my opinion. Do you agree? Disagree? Yeah? Well, I was watching um, uh, 
And it's so subtle, it's so elusive, but how a sensation in the body becomes comes into consciousness and you can follow it and the thought comes and then it's almost like you're off and running, you know. There's this story, there's this this dialogue mm-hmm. that, 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 that blossoms out of this this sense, you know, a tickle or a breeze or something, and then the thought goes and yes. you bring it back. It goes another place. It's just this Dance of senses and thoughts. Interesting. Anybody else notice that relationship between sensations trigger, you know, mental objects? They trigger thoughts, memories, emotions, feelings. Besides the fact of everything being an experience, and it, 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 it's it's all feels like it's happening. Everything was an ing. It's it's a mm-hmm. being. It, 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 there isn't anything left over except happening. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? I'm not very content with the language for it. Yeah, the language is a little... Our, our language is not quite adequate to the task. But what I think you're saying is... Well, I think it's obvious that all sensation is a process. Process. Much yeah. better word. Every sensation is a process. But there didn't seem to be anything but process. Well, in, 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 in truth, there isn't anything but process. But normally, uh, we, we have an experience of, of objects. Things seem to concretize in our mind. But that's one of the things that happens, you know, you have a sensation and then there emerges the label that says what that sensation is, right? And that label, the concept that goes with it, that has that has a lot more thingness to it than what the sensation itself does. Everything that I was observing seemed only really to I had, I saw, I caught myself doing almost nothing but comparison. This was like this. Um, you asked for us to look at a memory, so I look at a memory and um, curious to know a little more about that. The way to look at the memory seems to be put two of them side by side and look at, oh, this one feels like this, okay, he's talking about feeling tone, okay, he's talking about sensory derived experience, but it was it was more important to look at comparison and the action, the behavior, the process of comparison, and that's what I meant 
by it's it's all mm -hmm. something moving. There's no way for me to just grab onto something that isn't moving. And, and yes, I, I agree with you. That that is true. But in a sense, what, what but think about those. I, I mean, a memory. It's it, it seems it, it seems like a thing, right? Yeah. If you look at it closely, it's a process. The memory arises and is there for a while, and then it's gone. And, mm -hmm. and but it has to be summoned. It has to be built. But it's it, it, yeah. Well, we could talk a bit about what a memory really is. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the, the way we normally treat a memory is if it was a photograph. Right, or, or recording. It's a, a static imprint. Um, we don't need to get into this, but the fact is it's not. You, you, you don't have a collection of recordings and photographs and stuff in your mind. Actually, every time you remember something, you create it brand new in that, in that moment. So it really is a process. But our, we don't normally experience the world that way. That we we have these mind-generated uh, objects that seem to have their own reality, and uh, you know we 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 actually live in this world of mind-generated objects, sort of like drawings and pictures and labels and stuff like that all hanging on the wall or the inside of your, your skull. But they're all derived from sensations, which is just a process. You know, that's already gone. It's, you know, each part of that sound of that finger snap, uh, the, the, the first part of the sound lasted only a tiny instant, and the second, and third, and fourth, and last part of the sound come and go. It's, it's, it's all a process. But that finger snap doesn't feel that way in your mind, does it? It's, it's that sound. And not only that, along with it comes, even if you can't hear it, uh, even if you can't see my hand, the sound you can generate the image of a hand making a finger snap, right? And conceptually, you know, not the sound of a machine gun cocking. Don't need to react to it that way. Huge amount of stuff in there. But anyway, to get back to this, we have sensations. And then we have all this mental activity and reaction to the sensations. And it's an interesting thing. In order to understand our mind, we're going to use this over and over again, the simple division into nama and rupa. You know, sensations and mental formations. We're going to use that in many different ways, discover all kinds of wonderful things as a result of it. But there's a curious thing about it, if you think, if we think about this just for a moment, 
they are part of the natural taxonomy of the wine, but there's an illusion in there as well. <clears throat> when you were born, did you have any thoughts, you think? You suppose that you did? Concepts? Ideas? And when you examine the nature of concepts and then, the, you know, Concepts tend to be complex structures built out of simpler structures. And, if, and then you look at those simple structures and you realize they're made out of simpler structures still. If you follow on down to the bottom, what you find ultimately is raw sensory experience. And everything in this wonderful mind of yours, in this head of yours, has been built up out of what? Sensory experience. You're having sensory experiences in the womb. I'm not sure what day it happened on that you had enough nerve cells in place connected together that you were having sensory experiences. And then you were born, and of course the number and variety and frequency of sensory experiences exploded beyond that. But all of these mental formations, concepts, thoughts, ideas, memories, all of this, this whole category of mental object, they ultimately derive from sensations. So, in a sense, in an ultimate sense, mental objects are really sensations. They're just fancy, elaborate, concocted sensations, right? Although, on the other hand, on the other hand, What is a sensation? Blue, right? You look at that and have the sensation blue. As, as long as you have color perception, you have the sensation blue. But what is the experience of blue? Does blueness exist in the world? Does blueness exist in your eye? The answer is no, right? You agree? There is no blueness in the world. And there is no blueness in your eye. And what connects your eye to the rest of your brain? Little pulses of electricity along nerve axons happening very, very rapidly. Is there any blueness in the train of nerve impulses that goes from your eye to your brain? Hmm. It sounds like blueness is just another one of those mental constructs. So, on the other hand, there really are no sensations. It's all mental constructs. Yes? If you are a blind person, then you will have blue as a mental construct, whatever you construct that to be? That's a, that's a very interesting question. Very interesting. If, um, of course, if you... What you're really asking is if a person was born blind. Yeah, because if a person became blind later on, they'd, they'd still have blueness as a mental construct. And uh, 
I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a good question. I don't know how you could find out unless you could take a person who was blind at birth and somehow give them sight. And, and, and maybe they could tell you the answer. Okay. But so there's some other interesting things about this too. That, you know, you know how you can change the, the uh, color tones on, on an image so that switch all the blues to reds and you know shift all the colors to a different different place on the color wheel. And for all you and I know is your blue may be my red. And we would never know, right? As long as we both point to the same thing and make the same sound with our mouth, we'll never know. What's even more subtle than that? Your blue could be my salty. <laughs> but as long as we make the same sound and we point to the same thing, we'll never know. Yeah. For somebody that's colorblind, would they have a sense? I mean, how would they learn that that's blue? How, where do they get the sense of blue? Yeah, well, is there anybody, are there any colorblind people in the room? Well, when I worked for a while, once. Huh? <laughs> you know, statistically, that's interesting. We have 40 people in the room who would think there would at least be one colorblind person. Of course, one of the things that's very interesting is we may have a colorblind person in the room who doesn't know it. That's right. Because many times people who are colorblind don't know they're colorblind until something makes it obvious. When you know they obviously can't distinguish uh, colors that, that other people can, you know, or they they go and a doctor shows them you know the picture with all the little dots, and if you're not colorblind, you see the number seven, but if you are, you you don't. That, that sort of thing. A colorblind person doesn't know they're colorblind until something happens to cause them to know it. They have they have they have a perception that's unique to them. But anyway, the the point of this is that we go in this funny little circle, and uh, you know uh, we have this material world that's outside of our mind that the mind knows through the senses, right? It knows it through sensations, but when we look really closely, the nature of sensation is mental in nature. It's ultimately mental. But the other way around, too, that we see that everything, really, everything, all of the constructs in our mind um, are, are ultimately traced back to sensory experiences that we had, and the mind has built them up out of sensory experiences. That doesn't change the fact, though, that, I mean, it's a really interesting thing to know and to keep in mind as you discover more and more wonderful things about the nature of your mind, the nature of consciousness, and the nature of reality, to keep that in mind. But anyway, when it comes to trying to understand our own mind, to be able to divide up objects of consciousness in a convenient way so that we can work with them, 
constructively, there is this natural division. And, and it goes very deep. Because no matter what the actual nature of a sensation is, it does not come from your mind. Right? That's a really important distinction, which we take for granted, but it's worth, it, it's worth making note of. There are these two categories of things in your mind. One of which originates outside of the mind itself. And it follows a set of laws that the physical sciences can define and study and make predictions about. And it follows those laws. There's another kind of thing that appears in your consciousness that is mental in nature and is constructed by the mind according to a different set of laws that apply uniquely to that. We haven't really, we haven't really explored that in the, a scientific way to any great degree yet, although it's beginning to happen. But um, there are these, these two different kinds of objects. Those are derived from outside of the mind that follow that, that, that are lawful in nature and those that have their origins inside the mind that uh, are also lawful in nature but uh, at least the, the laws they follow aren't necessarily the same. You know, have you ever had, had the thought or perhaps um, read somewhere or heard somebody say, how do you know that you're not dreaming this? How do you know that What's the difference between the experience you have when you're awake and when you have a very vivid dream? You ever thought about that? And you can have extremely vivid dreams, extremely detailed dreams. I'm sure you've all had those. Does anyone in the room have trouble telling the difference between a dream experience and a, quote, real experience, a waking experience? Nobody has that problem? Okay, I'm not surprised. People don't have that problem. They don't have that problem unless something's really haywire in, in the way their brain works. They can distinguish those things that are generated primarily in the mind from those things that originate outside the mind. And how is it that we do that? When you dream that you jump out of a second-story window, what happens? You fly. Yeah. <laughs> or something else happens, but what happens when you're awake and you jump out of a second-story window? <laughs> you end up with bones broken or bruises or you know all this other stuff. And there's no way around it. Right? That's what I mean. What gives rise to a sensory experience? It follows its own set of laws. You know, and anybody that tells you that they can jump out a second story window and not be bruised when they land is dreaming. <laughs> and that's the difference. That's the difference between mind-generated things and, uh, and this other 
category of things, is that they follow a different set of rules. And you've known that all your life. Everybody's always known that. It's one of, the, it's one of those things that you, you can take it for granted to such a degree that some, somebody can come along and convince you that you don't know the difference between what's dream and what's real. But it's not true. You really are these two distinct categories of conscious experience. And isolated from a larger context, you know, if, if, if you only have the part of the experience that consists of the, the, the leap from the window and the spreading of your arms, can't tell the difference. You know, we just take that snippet of the dream and that snippet of the real life experience. It's just no way to tell them apart. But in the larger context, there's, there's no way to mistake the two. Yes? There's two in the dream that tends to you, know, you lose it quickly. It's really hard to hang on to for very long, it seems like. Yeah. A lot of people. That, yes. that, is, that is another one of the common characteristics that allow us to tell dreams from this other kind of experience. But, you know, there, there are exceptions to that, too. There's, there are certain kinds of mental illness where it's not the, the person, that where, where the, the, whether you call it a hallucination or whatever you call it, persists for very long periods of time and, and doesn't look like a dream. But, you know, even if you're having a hallucination, you know, the, the, the the laws of matter are still going to apply to the consequences. Yes? What about imagination? Uh, you know, when I'm yeah. sitting more recently than the past, um, a great deal seems, I mean, if I'm, I'm doing focus on um, talk, mm -hmm. It's a great deal of making up stuff. I mean, it isn't just lists, or, or it isn't just thinking about the past, or it isn't worrying about the future. Mm -hmm. It's also invention. Yes, you, you can create something that you've never... You can create... You can imagine an image of something that you have never seen, right? Uh, often, yes. Right. And, and so, imagination, what is that in terms of consciousness? Where is that faculty? <coughs> well, it, it's your mind. It's actually your mind doing the same thing it does when it creates every other kind of of, of image or experience you have. If you if you imagine right now, you could imagine uh, a, uh, a a blue rose, right? It's easy to do. What do, what is it constructed out of? It's constructed out of image of a rose and experience of blue, and you just add the blueness to the rose, and you imagine a blue rose. Okay. So, it's it's imagination is a mental construct. But even the red rose that you see is a mental construct. We don't need to get into the details of that. But that's what I was meaning when I was saying that all, all these experiences, all, all, everything that falls in the category of thoughts and memories, and we include imagination in there, these are all constructs, and if you follow them far enough, you end up seeing that they've been assembled inside the mind 
from raw sensory experience. So what we can't imagine, imagine what it's like to be a bat. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it's like to fly through the air in the dark and go squeak, 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 and you know, <laughs> to see an insect zipping by clearly enough to whip your tongue out and hook, hook them and draw them in? Imagine that. Oh. We can come close to it by somehow using our own visual process, and, you know. But really, it's impossible to imagine how a bat sees. So, for you, to, for you to actually imagine something, uh, for you to imagine something, you have to con- you have to construct it out of sensory experience that you have had. Seers, um, the discussion so far is about knowing the mind. Is there a purpose for meditation outside of knowing the mind? Well, you could, we could describe the purpose of meditation in, in many different ways. But knowing the mind is really... It is a really central purpose. I mean, we could say the purpose of meditation is to... Uh, manage stress better and to be more relaxed. And um, you can do that while only minimally learning anything about your mind. But you haven't accomplished very much because until you have, until your meditation has taken you to a deeper level of understanding, and we're not talking about intellectual understanding, we're talking about something experiential. Um, There are only certain kinds of situations and to a certain degree that your skill in meditation is going to help to uh, relieve your stress or or to relax you. But... As, as you do come to understand your mind directly, experientially, and in these really important ways, one of the results is it changes the way your mind works, and it can actually put you into a place where you don't, you don't respond in the same way that you once did. Is metapractice a meditation? Metapractice is definitely a meditation. It is... <clears throat> One of the ways that we can think of meditation is it's a series of activities that we perform in order to alter the way our mind works in ways that benefit us. So, developing stability of attention. We're training the mind to behave in a different way. And metta is that in the sense that uh, you're training your mind to generate loving-kindness. And uh, you're conditioning it to do that. And uh, with the beneficial effect that loving kindness spontaneously occurs uh, in situations where it otherwise wouldn't. And your mind becomes more prone to developing, to producing loving kindness than other more negative mental states. So that's one sense in which it is a meditation, It, it is a training of the mind. But it's also meditation. The thing is that by practicing metta, you also are developing stability of attention. 
So you're you're you're, you're training faculties, uh, mental faculties, in the same way that uh, other kinds of practices do. It is possible through meta practices. Now, editor requires more sophisticated meta practices, but it's it's possible to develop uh, samatha, to develop samadhi and samatha. It's even possible to enter the the jhanic states with uh, with loving kindness meditation. So it definitely meta is definitely a kind of meditation. It fulfills those those criteria. Where metta is not very strong is in the area of developing mindfulness. It can really support developing mindfulness, but mindfulness requires some, some other... It, it requires that you, that you simultaneously cultivate some other mental faculties. And so in that regard, metta meditation by itself has a weakness. But meta meditation in combination with other techniques becomes very strong. It seems to be not directly this knowing the mind tech that uh, we seem to be focused on today. It seems to not be an aspect of knowing the mind, which seems to be a more passive, observant, uh, gener- uh, generating ability to connect to witness, where meta practice and perhaps other practices of meditation are more. Uh, more generative, more that you're active. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's different kind of poles in what's going on with with the practice. You know, instead of being uh, developing witness and just observing, it seems with meta there's an active component to it. Yes, it, it meta. It, that, that's right. We can divide meditations into those that involve that are primarily passive observations and those that involve some kind of active synthesis, making something happen, including visualizations and things like that. But there's a lot of overlap too. And uh, a person could do only meditation and they could make some really profound changes in themselves. They'll be far more effective though if their meditation is combined with other practices that you know, doing meta practice is is utilizing, in a sense, it's utilizing somebody else's knowledge and understanding of how the work, how the mind works. So somebody else who knows how the mind works creates the meta practice, and if you just do the meta practice, it will it will produce its result. If, in combination with the meta practice, you are practicing mindfulness, you are coming to understand. The nature of how your mind works, then, then it will it will it, it will be much more empowering, and you will know you'll know what you're, you you'll know the underlying process that's taking place when you do the meta practice. So it seems that knowing the mind is a foundational aspect of other practices. Is what is why you you're, the focus right now is on knowing the mind. What we're talking about meditation is part of a systematic way of achieving a particular kind of transformation in our mind. It is not the only way. It's a very systematic way. And as a part of that particular systematic way, there, uh, central to it is having a direct experiential realization, having insight into the nature of the mind and, and how it works. So really, this transformation that we're talking about, we call it enlightenment, 
call it whatever you want, but it goes by different terms when you're talking different religious traditions. You know, and and Christians achieving with a Christian achieving divine union, it's really the same thing, but it happens in a very different way, and it doesn't necessarily involve. Uh, it not only doesn't involve the same set of systematic practices, it doesn't necessarily involve anything like that degree of understanding the, the nature of the mind. So this is a, an approach, not the only approach. Okay? Thank you. Yeah? The, uh, the, the capacity to notice whether something is physical or mental, all of these seem to be trapped within the watcher, the self is still just being clever, trying to quicken the awareness of them, yeah. but, but it doesn't, um, I can't see how that skill is, is very useful because the self just, if anything, has something to boost itself saying, oh great, or are able to very clearly distinguish between what's physical and what's mental, mm -hmm. I mean great, but that's just compounding the self again, like there's no attack on the self, there's no wearing down of the self in, in the approach so far, I'm not seeing why that's how, right. how it's going to be spiritually useful. You're absolutely right. It's just the beginning, it's just, it's just the first, first piece. In what is involved in this is you're, you're moving in the direction of a profound understanding of the true nature of reality, and it is that understanding that transforms the way the mind works and constitutes you as a, an awakened being. Okay, so it's it is a path of, of understanding, but uh, learning the first ingredients in that path of understanding—that it's just the very beginning. In uh, in what's called the progress of insight. You know, 16 distinct steps that culminate in, uh, in an insight into the true nature of reality. The insight into nama and rupa, the insight into name and form, what different terms for what we're talking about here, the distinction between these two kinds of mental experience, that's number one. Okay. So. Yeah, by itself, and if you don't go any farther than that, it does, it's not necessarily going to do you a lot of good. Right? It'll do you some good, though. But, the, but certainly, understanding this distinction, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that's very useful in beginning the process. And the, the sooner that you gain that understanding, then the easier it's going to be for your mind to have insights into deeper uh, aspects <coughs> of reality. And just knowing the difference between, between Nama and Rupa, even that's not the totality of the first insight. That's only the beginning of the first insight. The other part of it was touched upon by Pam that noticing that sensations give rise to mental objects. And likewise, what we find really obviously is that mental objects 
give rise to sensations. The thought to direct your attention causes you to have a sensory experience coming from the place that the, the sensation comes from. And so the next part of that insight is to that also it's only an insight when you've experienced it directly and that something inside clicks and says, oh yeah, I see, I, I can see how this is working. But the next part of that is seeing the dance between these two, that the causal interconnectedness between them. And, and really as that matures, and some, sometimes doesn't mature for a long time, you do get to the point of what I was talking about earlier, of seeing that sensations are all mental objects too. And mental objects are all derived from sensations. So that uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of circularity that by understanding the difference, you eventually realize the sameness. And this is something that repeats over and over again in the whole process: is you understand it clearly this way, and when you understand it clearly enough, all of a sudden it turns 180 degrees and it says just the opposite as well. So. Yes? So uh, maybe I, maybe I'm hearing the same thing as everybody else, presumably, but I, when you, the way you've been talking about it, I've been thinking that what, the way, that what you've really been presenting is uh, the first three of the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, and which has that same kind of circularity because you've been talking about mindfulness of body You've been talking about mindfulness of mind and um, also the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. And what I've been thinking of and, and experiencing also as we've done the practice is that um, um, exactly what you were saying about the, the non-linear or circular nature of things in that that you could be doing any one of those, you could be focusing on any one of those aspects of experience, all of which are happening simultaneously, and then once in a while, for me, I might actually get a glimpse of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mm -hmm. of mindfulness of dharmas, because I'll start to see the threads that mm -hmm. are connecting the first three. But I, I don't know if I'm off base in seeing what you're presenting as being in terms of that, but that's that's how it, no, that's it, the conceptual structure that's worked for me. Oops, that shouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You, you, it, but yeah, actually, it's not just. Well, your comment is, is correct that uh, I've been talking about the foundations of mindfulness, but not just the first three, actually all four, right? So, uh, yes. The mindfulness of the body, that's, that's the whole sensory realm, that's the whole form realm. That's also the first of the five aggregates. The second foundation of mindfulness, or I like to refer to them as applications of mindfulness. The second application of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which is the second of the five aggregates. Then the third of the applications of mindfulness is basically mindfulness of mental states as mental states, which are the notions that I talked about. 
mental states and emotions. Right? Now, emotions belong to the, uh, in the five aggregates, they belong to the aggregate of mental formations, as do thoughts and ideas and concepts. Uh, but actually, perceptions are mental formations as well. In the five aggregates, we've taken two kinds of mental formations, feelings and perceptions, and pulled them out of the whole basket of all the other mental formations and, and, and set them up side by side on their own. But all of these other, other mental formations are the dharmas. They're, they're the fourth foundation. So, so yes, the four foundations of mindfulness is also what I'm discussing here. A question to um, when you talk about all sensations of the body are mental con concepts or mental formations. So does it mean when you cut yourself, for example, you notice only, uh, you, you hurt only when you notice in your mind that you cut yourself, and if you don't notice it, you would not hurt? It's kind of the other way around. <laughs> you only you only know that you cut yourself because it hurts or because you see the blood or something else. Some sensory input is what, that's the only way that you know that you cut yourself. Right, but that is not, that is not starting in the mind when you hurt your body. No, this, that's right. This, this one category, sensations, all sensations have their origin in something outside of your mind. Okay. Okay? The sensation you have, the, the pain you feel when you cut yourself, that, that is a mental object, but it's a mental object that has arisen because of something outside of the mind. And the same thing true, you, you see the redness of the blood. The, the redness that you see and the conceptual formation of, oh, that's blood, and all these other things, these are all mental formations, but they were caused to arise by something that is not inside. Something that, by definition, exists. To exist is to be outside of. To, it actually literally means to stand outside. Stand outside of what? Stand outside of the mind. What exists stands outside of the mind. And so something exists that causes you to feel the pain and causes you to see the blood. But your feeling of the pain and you're seeing the blood is not knowing that which has given rise to it. All you know is the mental elaboration ar around that. You tell the story, I have this thing called a finger, and there is, exists such a thing as a sharp knife, and the sharp knife made a cut in my finger. That's all just a story your mind made up to explain this sudden sensation of, uh, of a sharp stinging pain and the visual impression of of uh, blood. No, but how can you ever conquer that pain? Like you go to the dentist and you have all your mental facility, uh, mm -hmm. you know, programmed. I will not feel it. I will be totally in control of it, and you are freaking out. You, you can't so conquer pain. It, you you cannot conquer pain. What you can conquer is the suffering caused by the pain. Somebody who can go and have a, a dental extraction without anesthesia, they're going to feel the pain. Unless they take some kind of drug or anesthesia or something like that to interrupt 
you know, to interrupt that process, they're going to feel the pain. <coughs> this is one of the important things, is that pain is merely an unpleasant sensation. Suffering is the mind's reaction to it. And when you think of the pain of going to the dentist, you're not thinking, you, you, what you're referring to isn't really the unpleasant physical sensation, it's your mind's reaction to it. That's what makes you miserable. That's what makes you suffer. And when your mind no longer reacts to it in that way, it's just an unpleasant physical sensation. And you could potentially choose to do it without the anesthesia, without the uh, uh, Novocaine or whatever they use. But this is, yeah, that's something worth understanding. We're not talking about somehow magically making a person not experience pain, but they don't have the same mental reaction to it that they did before. And uh, I can tell you from first-hand experience that that can be inconvenient until you learn other ways to recognize pain. Because pain serves an important purpose. That's how you know you cut yourself with a knife and you do something appropriate about it. And this may jump ahead a little bit, but but as we examine the mind and and uh, you know all these aspects and see the tremendous subtlety and the coming and goingness, the the, the morphing, all this that's going on, you know, the, what it to me what it's really teaching is deeply in the sense of impermanence. It definitely does that. It's just yeah. all, it's, just, it's yeah. so coming and going, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, the understanding of impermanence as a result of meditative experiences, it, it takes a few different forms and uh, which involve a progressively more profound understanding. You know, there, you have this experience of things coming and going. And, and nothing having any persistence. And uh, that gives you a certain kind of insight and understanding. And then you, it comes to a point where you realize there are no things at all. There, there is only process. And that's a really deep understanding of impermanence. You know, the, uh, to say there are no things. This is how the sixth patriarch of Zen summed up, you know, uh, the, this, this profound idea of emptiness. <coughs> Ultimately, there are no things. Right? Um, the other part of it is that if there are no things, there is only process. And the other thing is that there is no separateness. There is no distinction. So actually, through recognizing that there are no things, that all thingness is the creation of the mind, and through this, uh, through the profound realization of impermanence, which is that there is only process, it also leads to the realization that there is no separateness. And so the conception of the self is somehow separate from other is likewise an illusion. As, uh, as should be no surprise, the more you <coughs> come to understand 
the true nature of reality, you know, in, in, in one, one facet, one area, it, it inevitably leads to the larger understanding of the rest. But that's really what we're after, is to understand, to get beyond the delusion, the deluded way that our minds naturally want to perceive things, and that cause us to uh, think and feel and react the way they do, and, and cause us to suffer. So you're trying to get past this delusion. And so this method, this dharma, with its meditation and its mindfulness and its insight, is a very systematic way of bringing you to that. And so, and, and this is where it begins. This begins essentially with the recognition that if I want to understand the true nature of reality, I have to understand the nature of my conscious experience. Because essentially, that's all I am. That's all I ever have been. That's all there is. I can infer that there's existence of things outside of my conscious experience, but the only thing I have direct conscious experience of is my own conscious experience. So as we bring the focus to that, say, okay, how, how can we investigate conscious experience? This is our key, this is our entryway into understanding reality. We recognize that. So that's why we close our eyes. We, first of all, we sit down and become still, stop all of our doing. Secondly, we close our eyes, kind of minimize how much stuff, how much stuff there is going on in conscious experience so that we can begin to explore it and examine it. And from this first step, there, there are different ways that we can go, but one really useful way to begin is say, okay, I have all these different things that I'm experiencing in consciousness, is there some way I can categorize them? And yes, there is. And this particular way of categorizing them is, is one that is is deeply meaningful and is already tapping into this greater truth, this ultimate truth that we're pursuing. And so it's a really good way to begin. So you sit still, close your eyes, and learn to make the distinction between Nama and Rupa. And then as you persist in observing that, see the relationship, the interaction between Nama and Rupa. That Stumbling on the definitions of nama and rupa, can you help me with that, please? Yes. Okay. This is this is some convenient technical lingo. Nama literally means name, and rupa literally means form, and so they're kind of a shorthand. Form is shorthand for what is known through the senses, and name is shorthand for what is mind generated. Okay? So, uh, of course, the name that we give to something, you know, the, the label and all the conceptual stuff that goes with it, this is all mind-generated. So, so, the word that means name is, is a, a complete, it, it is a convenient shorthand for all that is generated by the mind. 
and rupa, which literally means form, as in the shape of something, whether you feel the shape or whether you see the shape or so forth. Rupa is likewise a shorthand for all that is known through the sense organ. And by inference, and of course, it's an insight to realize that this is inference. I mean, we go through our lives taking for granted that there is a material world out there that I am experiencing. But really, we only infer the existence of the material world that we can't know directly. All we actually know are the sensations that are produced by the interactions between our sense organs and whatever that whatever there is out there that we call matter, that we label as, as matter. So, in that sense, coming back to our, our construct here, Rupa refers to that which that that knowledge that we derive from our sense of sense organs, and Nama refers to all of that that we know that is derived directly from the activities of mind. Make sense? About uh, second sight, uh, extrasensory, does that fit into sense, or is it mind generated? Well, what, I'm not sure what you mean by extrasensory. But well, people can claim second sight. Oh, okay. No Things sense. like that. All right. Well, um, see, this goes this goes beyond the the stepwise progression. the The distinction between nama and rupa is a big step. Farther along, there is a, a realization of. Uh, that, that things are very different than they appear um, in two important ways. One, that the apparent distinction between mind and matter is an illusion, that really the, the, uh, the true nature is non-dual in its essence. The second is that all separateness is illusory. And so, therefore, uh, the idea that uh, the contents of an individual human mind are somehow separate and distinct from everything else that makes up this ultimate reality. That's an illusion and that's not true. So with the realization of those two, then that there would be what are called extrasensory phenomena is no big deal, it's no surprise. We're still left with filling in a lot of blanks, of, you know. Uh, and the real blank, I mean, once you realize that that is the nature, that everything is ultimately interconnected, and the private world that we think we live in inside our head is, is just an illusion, uh, and, and they're really all interconnected. The real question is not why some people have extrasensory experiences, it's why everybody doesn't all the time. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we do. And that, that's the answer. The answer is, thank God we do. Because it's the only way that we could function and survive as the illusory separate entities that, that we are. You know, the purpose of samsara, which is the traditional name for this situation that we find ourselves in, is this delusion. You know, samsara is the wheel of uh, 
uh, birth and death and rebirth. And if we didn't have this mind that acts as a filter to separate what's going on in, in this part of ultimate reality from everything else that's going on in ultimate reality, then the survival and reproduction, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, pro the ongoing process of birth and death and rebirth couldn't, couldn't happen. So, uh, yeah. uh, thank God we do is another way of saying that this is the way the universe functions, is to create these artificial separations and for minds to create these artificial separations so that, uh, so that entities can survive and do their thing. And we're not after ending that. I mean, our goal isn't to, to end that. Our goal is to transcend that so they can keep on happening, but we don't have to experience the suffering that is inherent in believing the illusion. And if along with it we get to exercise some extrasensory powers, that's fine too. As long as it doesn't overwhelm us to the extent that we're no longer capable of surviving. You know, what would happen if you get up in the morning to go to work, but at some point all of a sudden you can't tell the difference between your thoughts and your memories and your history and your intentions and purposes and your next door neighbors? You know, he's a lawyer and you're a plumber and you show up in the law office and you have no idea what to do. <laughs> or get in the wrong car and your key won't fit, you know. Silly examples, but it's a necessary part of it that we we do have this experience of being uh, being separated. But when we understand that that's no longer the truth, then we stop reacting uh, on the basis of, of that illusion, and that's where we achieve the liberation from suffering, and the wisdom, and the compassion that comes from that wisdom which is what the path is about. What can be derived from the occasional skip of, 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 of separateness? I'm thinking about, for instance, the way I and all of my friends woke up the day after the Berlin Wall fell, mm -hmm. and everybody was goofy. Everybody was giddy. And and so many people wandered around. It was like it was, it was a very happy. It was like Christmas all of a sudden, and everybody was like, "I didn't know what a burden I was carrying until it fell." Well, what what you're saying is that we all do have individually and collectively these experiences that are really indicating that the the, the separation that we experience is illusory, and that's true. So what can be but we, we learn as children and our culture reinforces a particular way of seeing reality and part of that way of seeing reality is to, is to find one way or another to either explain away as opposed to explain, to explain away or to ignore or to simply disregard what doesn't fit into the shared paradigm. So having glimpsed that worldwide giddiness for a moment, 
There's no way for us to say <laughs> and and exploit that somehow in our own practice. Well, there certainly is for you, for any individual that you see. That what what you had was an inside experience. What you didn't have was a mind that was properly prepared to uh, experience insight as a result of the inside experience. These kinds of things are happening to everybody all the time. That's another thing about the purpose of meditation. It's to prepare your mind so that when you have insight experiences, the result is insight into the way things really are. And not a distraction. What's that? And not be a distraction. And not be a distraction. That's right. That's that's. Most people, they they just blow off inside experiences as my meditation's not working the way it should be, or um, um, I, there was this strange thing that happened to me, but but now it's gone and I can get back to meditating. Or that was a distraction, but I didn't succumb to it. I, I stuck with. That's what happens with insight experiences until the mind is prepared. And until the mind is prepared, an insight experience can give rise to insight. But the journey that we're talking about here, the one that begins with sitting still, closing your eyes, and beginning to explore and examine your mind. Is, uh, is is the preparation that allows inside experiences to become insights. You know, there seems to be a paradox is that on the path to no suffering, mm -hmm. all these interesting things pop up. Okay? And once you get to the point where it's no suffering, all those things no longer matter. Mm -hmm. They're just things. But mm -hmm. on the way, there are distractions. Or can be distractions, and I think it's so easy to get to go off on, especially the extrasensory one. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, you, you can. You, that's right, you, and people do. They get very distracted by extrasensory. Uh, traditionally, uh, there are what I call the. the Siddhas are, are, are powers that uh, sometimes develop as a result of these practices and these understandings. One of which is knowing the minds of others. And people say, oh, wouldn't that be great to know the minds of others? Or, or um, you know, the divine eye, being able to see what's happening through the eyes of some other being. Or the divine ear, being able to hear what's happening somewhere else through the ears of another being. And they, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful, you know? But in pursuing that, you're missing the whole point. These are these things are really, in themselves, they're only incidental, and you know, they they don't have any real value. So they are distractions. So it's good not to mistake these things and not to get caught up in. And, and the desire for, you know, the, the, the desire for extra life. Why on earth would you want to have extrasensory powers? Well, it's because you say that if I had those powers, I could satisfy these other desires that I have. I could fulfill them, uh, which means that you're just going to put yourself that much farther from understanding of truth, and you're going to set yourself up that much, for that much more suffering um, because you've made yourself a more 
this deeply desire-filled person. So you go the wrong way. Anyway, so I, I, my clock did something weird. Can you tell me what time? It's eight fifty-five. So we have five minutes. Okay. So we we'll pick this up tomorrow morning. Eight fifty-six. I'm sorry. <laughs> it happened so quick, I thought I should tell you. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so we'll pick this up again in the morning, and what we're going to look at is, uh, we, we looked at the contents of uh, conscious experience. So uh, we'll start off in the morning with looking at the nature of conscious experience. Uh, through some more guided meditations. Um, we'll be starting at 9 in the morning. And uh, I think it would be preferable for all concerned if we were able to start on time. So please do your best to allow enough time to get here, uh, find a an appropriate place to park, and um, Cynthia will talk to you a little bit about parking in a moment. You know, and you got to get in here and find your seat so that we can actually start at, uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning. Okay? Um, can, you just, just, uh, can someone let us know when lunch and yes, breaks so, and all that kind of thing? Yes. Cynthia is going to enlighten us on all of these important things. <laughs> okay. And it was just one little thing, that if one had extra sensitivity and could do that, they also just feel all the self It's not that much fun. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. But now let's think about So we will meet, it starts, it's Chiladasa, painting Chiladasa, that's, ah, oh, it's hard to go back to normal, you know. Um, parking. Uh, if you will park on the other side of the mountain, park down the block, park in other blocks, because it's a residential neighborhood, and all of us, I don't know how many are coming tomorrow, but we'll have 30-ish people, um, just be aware that we don't want to create a parking problem for the residents. And on Santa Rita, which is the road down there, there's a blue gate, and the woman does a form of, she, she works with people with physical disabilities, so they have to get in. Um, however they get in there and so they need to be able to park close to that gate so if you just don't park on that side of the street it's the west side of Santa Rita which is the very first street and if you don't remember all that don't worry somebody will remind you um, you are welcome to bring a lunch there's a refrigerator here and Sheila Dasa has asked us actually that we'll be in silence um, why we are in the center and whether you know, if you're going outside onto the grounds or outside on the sidewalk, you know, to get into your car and way away so that we can hold our minds and, and contemplation of this and we will be asking questions as part of the format so questions we can. And um, thank you Mike for doing all this work with the registration. Not thank, you. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you Mike. Leave that's all for tonight. Yes. Any questions? When is the lunch break? Oh, I'm sorry. And it is from noon to one. Yeah. And there will be a break in the mid-morning and mid-afternoon as well. Yes, there is. There are people that need to park close. Oh, of course. Right? Yes. And yes. right out in front, 
down the street, there's room for two. If you pull your, if the one that pulls in first yes, pulls into the driveway. And cars can, there, I don't know how many people, I know two and Dawson Nance have a vehicle here, but what, three or four cars can fit actually in the driveway if there are people that need to be in the Late tomorrow, like around 10. And so I'm wondering if we can have some system so we can know whether to open the door or not, you know, wait till the meditation is done. And is, is somebody willing maybe to put a sign or um, don't need to, but if, if, if I can avoid disturbing mm -hmm. that way. No, that's a very good point. If uh, <clears throat> I suppose that we can make a little note and somebody could be in charge of putting it up before we begin a meditation and taking it down afterwards. Or maybe we could open the back door. That would be used until about 10.30. Oh, it 10:30. is. Okay, 10.30. Okay. It, it, yeah. <laughs> but actually, that, that's that's a very good idea for after that. So um, there's a good chance that we'll be doing at least one meditation before 10.30. So is there anybody who would like to be the self-appointed note putter on the door. <laughs> I think that sounds like a job. What's that? That sounds like a job for me. A job for you. Okay, thank you, Cynthia. So just, you know, when we begin a meditation, we'll put the note up and then we'll take it down afterwards so that if uh, somebody's standing out on the porch, they... Oh, are we starting with the meditation this morning? Will we... We, I don't know yet. Yeah. I don't have a script for this weekend. <laughs> so that's it for announcements. Any other questions? And have a wonderful night's sleep, and I'll see you in the morning, and hope you have a good day. And 